Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. This morning we're going to be in Romans 9, chapter 9, starting with verse 14. Okay, so if you're not familiar with the Bible or you're not familiar with the Bible teaching church, this is going to be very deep. So whether you had your coffee, your beet juice, your carbohydrates, hopefully it'll carry you and your brain's got to really be open for this. You know, and some things we look at in the scripture and we say, you know, I can take this on faith. But in a lot of portions of the scripture, if we actually read the Bible, God explains things to us. He helps us to understand spiritual things better because we're his children. He wants us to know these things, right? So part one of God's sovereignty was last Sunday, and that was really foundational to what we're going to teach today. So if you didn't get it, um, if you want to go home for free, get it on the website. You can actually pick it up on the website, the video, and you can kind of see where we were talking about today. Watch it. Watch the, the first part of it, and it'll be a better understanding. So what is sovereignty? Some people say, well, that's a big word. You know, you think about a king, a king is sovereign, a potentate. Um, God is the creator of all things. He's pretty much the king of the universe. Uh, he's omniscient. He knows all. He's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. Uh, he, when we think of sovereignty, we think of autocracy. We think of supremacy. So when we talk about the sovereignty of God, we speak about things that are part of his character. We're also speaking about the free will of mankind. It's a very interesting thing. As powerful as God is, he created us and he sets us forth with, as free moral agents to make choices. And one of those choices is to choose him or to not choose him. But he loved us so much that not only did he give us free will, that he sent us out as free moral agents, but he loved us so much that God tells us in his word, John 3.16, that he gave his only begotten son, Jesus, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. But again, that's a choice. People choose to do that or to not do that. And we're going to look at this in four parts. So in context, I'm going to go through these things really quickly because this is part two. We did cover this at the first half. Please come to me after service if you have a question about anything I said. And uh, I'd love to answer those questions for you. So what do we look at in context? God is sovereign. He's omniscient. We looked at Jacob and Esau, right? Jacob and Esau, you know, they come out. They're born. Um, for us, looking at their lives, we would have looked at them and probably thought, Jacob is going to be far away from God, and Esau is going to follow God. But God knew, even in the womb, which one was going to choose which path, and it actually was the reverse, Remember, 1 Samuel 16, 7, I love it. It says that the Lord doesn't see us as people we don't, as we see each other. But the Lord sees us, the, he looks at the heart, what's inside, where we don't have the ability to do that. Unfortunately, today, and people say, don't do this, but we judge by appearance. And this has been going on for thousands of years, and it's really terrible because we don't have all the facts, and we can't really determine a person's heart and their character by how they look. Uh, and this is why it, it's, it's taught in Christianity not to do that. So God has all the information about who we are and what we're going to be, but we don't. Right? We talked about his acceptance and rejection based on his knowing the future. Um, we talked about his, his sovereignty, and some people have difficulty with God's sovereignty. 
But again, I've, I've used the, I used a lot of analogies last Sunday because this is a subject that could be troubling if you don't fully understand it. So I talked about even me being in the court system for 25 years, that if there was a murder trial and they sequestered me and I couldn't see the evidence, the, the forensics, the testimony, and they just put me in the jury box and I have to vote somebody's death or acquittal, I wouldn't want to do it because I don't have any information. Sometimes people do that with God. They question his choices. They question his motives. And who are we as the creation to, to question the creator? Okay, and this is all context. This is all kind of wrapping up a lot of what we covered last Sunday. So it's commensurate to me sitting in on a murder trial where I have no information. I just look at the guy or the girl and go, yeah, guilty, not guilty. I wouldn't want to do it. God has all the information. The Bible says that all of his choices, 1 Peter 1, 2, are based on foreknowledge. God knows the future. We don't, okay? And we never will, <laughs> but God does. And he makes the choices to choose, to accept or reject based on the information that he has, the information that's going to play out, the in information on a person's heart. So putting all that together, let's jump in into the middle of the chapter, Romans 9, starting with verse 11. Excuse me, starting with verse 14. He says, the Apostle Paul, what shall we say then, based on what we just covered last Sunday? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. Paul oftentimes plays the polemic. He plays the other side. Even today, you might meet people that have an axe to grind with God, and they have these type of questions, and Paul answers a lot of them in the Scripture. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. So one out of four is the sovereignty of God. And Paul asked a question that many have asked, and he, he goes through it. Is God unfair the way he decides? And we talked about the context with Jacob and Esau and the nations, Israel and the Edomites. We talked about how the Edomites ended up producing the Herods, which were the false messiahs, which pulled people away from God. And God said specifically, quote in the Old Testament, I have, I have accepted Jacob and I have rejected Esau, or the people, the line of those that came from them. Again, knowing the end from the beginning. Here's another angle. If all have sinned and deserve eternal separation from God, right, because sin breaks that chain of fellowship with God, he says right here, God says, I will show mercy. I will show mercy. So any act that God shows of mercy to sinners in a sinful human race is an act of mercy and is a good thing. So we look at it sometimes from the negative. He's looking at it from the positive. You know, perspective is very important. He says, mercy is not deserved based on a person's will or how they run. In other words, God's mercy to us is not based on our thoughts, actions, and deed, deeds, because we can't earn salvation. Mercy is a gift that God gives to a sinful human race. And that's based on God's goodness. It's the genesis of that mercy. The Bible tells us in John 3.16, which I just quoted, that Jesus shows the whole world mercy. When Jesus hung on that cross and died for our sins, he didn't die for his favorite people, for a select few, for an elite few. He died for the whole world. And it's amazing how I'm hearing about different cultures and different continents that have received even visions and, and dreams about Jesus when they don't even know who he is because their country like North Korea or Iran squelches even Christian radio. They, they're able to you know, shut down the internet 
shut, you know, they, they control the populace and people are still getting saved. So Jesus died for the whole world, bar none. Important to understand. Continuing on, verse 17, he says, this is like kind of the meat of it here, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, Pharaoh, children of Israel, right? He didn't want to let them go. Eventually he had to. Even for the same purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be declared in all the earth. Therefore, he, God, has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. You will say then to me, another question, why does God still find fault? For who can resist his will? But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay? from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory? So two out of four is God's sovereignty with respect to the Pharaoh example. Now, as I'm studying this, I had to go back into the Old Testament, and read Exodus chapter 7 through 14. And we can see that each time there was a plague on Egypt, right? Or each time the plagues relented, Pharaoh hardened his heart against the, the children of Israel. He did this six times from what I can read, which is what's recording in Scripture. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Yet, yeah, you know, listen, we've all, folks, <laughs> if you've lived long enough, Sometimes we, we do that. Like we, we get cold and callous. Pharaoh did it because he didn't want to lose his slave labor. He did it for a lot of reasons. Did it for pride reasons. So he hardened his heart six times. The Bible tells us that on the seventh time that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Now that's interesting because the words are different in the original language in the sense that Pharaoh made these decisions to harden his... This is very important that we understand this, because otherwise what I just read, some of you are aghast and go, oh my goodness. I mean, that sounds like... And again, from a human perspective, God's not being fair. But let's, let's, let's play it out here, okay? So the seventh time, God pretty much solidifies Pharaoh in that situation of having a hard heart. Then it tells us again, after that, that Pharaoh hardened his heart again. And this goes on for some time. The only time that Pharaoh relented was when the plague was removed. And what I say about Pharaoh is he was a serial trial apologizer. You know, anytime when there was a trial, he relents. He can't take the pressure. It's too much to bear. Okay, okay, I'll let you guys go. God knew this would go on probably forever, and maybe he got tired of the games. I don't want to speak for God. But he decided to break the cycle. Maybe the plagues would have gone on for a thousand plagues, and it just keeps going on and on. But you could almost see this picture of Pharaoh, and he's like, you're not leaving. You're not going anywhere. And then the plagues come, and the, the Nile turns to blood and all these kind of things, and Pharaoh goes, oh. And you read it. He goes, oh, I've sinned against the Lord. You can go. So there's Moses over here going, all right, everybody pack your bags. We're, we're leaving Egypt. And, and what happens is Pharaoh hardens his heart. Nobody gets out of here alive. I'm just paraphrasing here. 
And Moses is like, all right, Lord, he's not going to let us go again, so there's another plague. And Pharaoh goes, oh, I'm so sorry, I shouldn't have done that. Forgive me. We'll even provide extra luggage. You know, you guys can go. So the plague gets, you know, removed, and Pharaoh's like, nobody gets out of here alive. And Moses is like, all right, he's doing it again. Here comes another plague. As much as you might get annoyed with seeing me do that a whole bunch of times, God might have got annoyed too, you know. So, you know, Pharaoh's playing games with the Lord. He's playing games with the children of Israel. He hardens his own heart, and then eventually God solidifies him in that so he can show his glory and power through the releasing of the Israelites out of Egypt. You know, I'm a pragmatist. To me, the moral of the story is don't be a stubborn Pharaoh. You know what I'm saying? Some people will listen to a message like this and last Sunday and say, so I wonder, has God chosen me or has he not chosen me? And they ponder it and they attribute certain things to God. And I just say this, just choose him. He's given you the free will to do it. You know, theologians do this too. They ponder things in the scripture and they debate and they argue and and, and the beauty of God's Word is sometimes lost on these debates when we should just be reading His Word, absorbing it, and doing what it says, applying it to our lives. So, verse 19, a legitimate, a legitimate question. If God hardens or raises up some for dishonor, then how can God find fault with them? And that's an excellent, excellent question. And the answer is, is that we still have choice. So let me ask you a question. Did Pharaoh have a choice? Yes, Pharaoh did have a choice. Because if God did that to him and, and froze him and did not allow him to make any choices, then that's a good question that Paul brings up that people say, well, how can you resist God's will? As powerful as God is, he's given us, really in a sense, power of our own lives. And the sad thing is we have power to, to live with God in peace, to, uh, to glorify him, to have him be used through us you know, we also have power to do, and this is probably one of the saddest things I've ever had to watch. We have the power to destroy our own lives. And every day, in this land of plenty, people are destroying their lives. That's, that's a lot of power God's given us, but, you know, it's, why would you do that? It's so, so important to understand who God is. So Pharaoh did have a choice. God speaks about the potter and the clay example. You know, as a potter works with clay and makes uh, one piece for a beautiful vase, and, you know, he may make another piece for putting the scraps into it, the waste paper basket, so to, see, so to speak. Um, he makes some vessels for glory and some for destruction. But going back to the Pharaoh example, which I think was, out of all the examples that the Apostle Paul could have used in the Scripture, he used, of course, this is inspired by the Holy Spirit, he uses Pharaoh, which is brilliant. Because Pharaoh reasons. He reasons with Moses. He's highly educated. The Egyptians at the time were the foremost in their universities over the entire world. So Pharaoh wasn't a stupid man. He was raised up. He was highly educated. No doubt he was articulate in debating people and getting his point across. But he still used his free will to destroy himself and harm much of his army and much of his people, which is really sad. And every day, like I said, there's people in this world that uh, resist God, you know, and, and unfortunately they, you know, this, this situation with this shooting, it's, there's so many of them lately that what's that person going to be known as? 
You know what I'm saying? What a horrible choice to make in life with your free will. And that's sad. But again, God's election, his choosing, is based according to his foreknowledge. We see that in 1 Peter 1, 2. Very, very important scripture. Now, this is where I kind of look at this as the crux or the, you know, the, the nexus, um, the apex of this chapter, verse 22. This is really going to help us to understand what is all being said here. This is going to help us to understand in this entire chapter and much of this book the relationship between God's sovereignty and man's free will choice. Let's look at this. It says in verse 22 that what if God wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. You know what it doesn't say in English? Who prepared the vessels? The assumption is that God did it. Now watch this. I, I took up, you know, I studied under an awesome professor, uh, Bill Mounts, uh, learning Greek. I can read Greek. I can interpret it. I understand it. As English has grammatical tenses, so does the Koine Greek. As a matter of fact, a lot of churches, very interesting, have in their statement of faith, God's word is infallible as originally understood in the original languages. Now, I would say that 99.9% of when it's translated into English, it's, it's all there. But there's, a, there's subtle nuances in the language structure that doesn't always come through in the English. So the Greek word pre- prepared is in what's called the middle voice, and it makes it a reflexive action verb. Now let me read it according to the strict nuances of, of the Greek. Watch this. The second part of it is that God endured with much patience. He's a very patient God. The vessels of wrath, those who determined to take a course of life where they destroyed their lives and rejected God and stepped into a godless eternity, that, watch this, prepared themselves for destruction. You see how themselves makes all the difference in the world? Did God prepare these people to be destroyed? It says they prepared themselves. So if you read the original languages and what the Apostle Paul, who was also learned and, and was a master in this Koine Greek at the time, this is what it says, that they prepared themselves for destruction. So in one verse, actually in half a verse, we can see how God's sovereignty and man's free will choice or personal responsibility are in harmony. You know, God is patient with sinners. Um, The sinner you know today could be yourself. It was me 20-something years ago. Could be the saved person tomorrow. The, The loved one, and this is what people do, they're like, well, I don't want to go to church or I don't want to learn too much about the Bible because it frightens me when I think of my loved ones who don't know Jesus yet. Well, how do you know God isn't going to raise you up to reach your loved ones? We have like a fatalistic idea sometimes when we don't realize that this is God. He can work through us. He wants to work through us. He does it every day with people. You know, and I'm one of those people that in my own family... I think I was the first one to get saved. It, I was annoying at first. Uh, don't get me wrong. But, you know, over time, I just was preaching and my life was changing. And, and one by one, my family members became believers. What if I said, well, I don't want to, I'm afraid, you know, you're talking about hell, you're talking about this. I, I don't want to go to church. I want to just, that's like when a burglar comes in your house and you go, I'm going to close my eyes and put my hands over my ears and hope that when I, 10 minutes, when I open my eyes, everything's going to be okay. It's probably not going to be the case. So, just you got to trust him and if god is calling you right he's calling you to salvation don't resist it 
But again, it's your choice. I can't intellectualize you into the kingdom. I can't manipulate you into the kingdom, nor would I want to. God doesn't do that, so I don't want to. I'm just here to make it clear so that you know that there's a path between you and God and there's no obstructions. We'll see. We'll see who comes forward today and receives Jesus. But he knew that Pharaoh was going to follow his carnal heart. He wanted to hold on to power like people do today. He was the king of all Egypt, and by extension, much of the world, because of where Egypt was in the world stage. So God, what he allowed was Pharaoh to go into this direction, knowing this from the beginning, so he could use his glory in, in, in the Exodus and having the children of Israel leave uh, Egypt by this miraculous way. I know I'm being repetitive, but this is such an important subject. And you know what? I've heard teachings, and, and it's, it bothers me, where some preachers and some ministries, they, they kind of, it's a weird thing. Like, they kind of make God out to be this uncaring king who just capriciously makes decisions not based on anything. And when you say, well, well how could he do that? Because he's God. Don't question it. That's terrible teaching because that's not the God that I know. That's not the God of love that I know. Is he a realist? Does he know that many are not going to come to him? Does he know that many are going to be punished for their sins? Yes, but his desire, according to the scripture, is that nobody would perish. And we keep reading this in the scripture. So I, listen, not that God needs me to be his attorney and put him in the best light possible, but from what I know of the scripture, I've read this cover to cover many a time, studied almost every book in here. I know God's character, so I am going to put him in the best light and not and compete with those teachings that leave when you leave the church, you feel dejected and depressed and wonder if God will ever choose you, even if you want him. You know, it's not good. So let's, let's just follow what the Scripture says. Verse 24, we continue. He says, Even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also the Gentiles, understand in Paul's day the world was pretty much you know, divided up into two types of people, the Jews who had the privilege and the miracles and the word and everybody else who was polytheist and they were considered the, the Gentiles, whether Roman, Greek, whatever, their pantheons, they were in the category of being the Gentiles. So we have to kind of go back to understand this better. As he says in Hosea, the Old Testament prophet, I will call them my people, speaking of the Gentiles, who are not my people, and her beloved who is not beloved, And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people. There they will be called the sons of the living God. Now when you really understand that, that's God's mercy on idol-worshipping, polytheist, terrible behavior, ungodly people, heathens, that God is saying, I want them in my fold too. Because why? God loves the whole world. Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel. as another Old Testament prophet. Though the number of the children of Israel be of the sand of the sea, the remnant or that small percentage will be saved, for he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. And as Isaiah said before, unless of the Lord of Seboeth had left us a seed, we would have become like Sodom and we would have been made like Gomorrah. So even God's mercy when the Israelites were acting no better than their pagan neighbors, when many of them had left God, instead of just wiping them all out, he always provided a remnant. And you see that in every situation, whether it's Egypt, whether it's Sodom and Gomorrah, whether it's, you know, um, these situations in Israelite history, he's always preserved a remnant and said, you know what, I, am, I would never destroy the righteous with the wicked. 
right, with Sodom and Gomorrah. There's only four people in the city. He waited till they left before he rained down judgment. So three out of four is God's sovereignty with respect to accepting the Gentiles, or some of the Gentiles. Sadly, though, rejecting some of the Israelites because their hearts were not for him. They had walked away from him. Again, knowing the end from the beginning that they would never repent and come back. Understand repentance. Repentance is something that the word at its root means change. So at any point in anybody's life, and this is why we talk about deathbed conversions or um, you know, somebody who goes into the hospital who's staunchly uh, against God and, and they're just laying in that bed. And just like my neighbor who I witnessed to years ago, for many years, he just always put on this hard face and front and made fun of me <laughs> because, you know, because there wasn't his thing. And I find out that uh, I, I did part of his eulogy and I find out through, I believe, the nursing staff that somebody ended up encouraging me and telling me that on his last night, he chased everybody out of the room and he laid in bed and he was starting to talk to God. So I have hope. I have hope. You know, so, and, and people say, why? It's funny. People get mad at God for, for doing what he has to do with justice. We all want justice. But then they get upset with him for showing mercy on people. And they say, well, that's not fair. How could a person live their whole life and at the end repent and they get into heaven? Because God's merciful. Now, don't get me wrong. It's not a game where you go, okay, gee, um, they tell me I got an hour to go. Hey, God, uh, I'm repenting. Okay, I want to get to heaven now. It's got to be in the heart. Right? People can do it on the outside. That's why we're not supposed to judge. But on the inside, if a person truly accepts Christ and, and asks for their sins to be forgiven, God, he's already paid that price on the cross. So God's merciful. Yeah? There's a lot to this. So we look at the Gentiles, we look at the Israelites, uh, and again, today people complain that God is too merciful, and then another group complains that he shows justice. So you know what God's going to do? He's not going to take our advice. He's going to keep being sovereign because he has all the answers. And I've got to tell you that before I was a Christian and I, and I went in some circles and I would say dumb things about God and in my ignorance I said some stupid things and unfortunately I still remember with a, with a bunch of friends and out on a Friday night and just you just talk about dumb things one after the other after the other. And he's forgiven me for that. Uh, but now I know the truth. You know, now I'm coherent and lucid in my spirituality. Uh, last few verses. Oh, wait a minute. I'm not done yet. <laughs> so, so God does this great work, uh, verse 25 through 26, that I kind of, you know, in Hosea, you know, I went back here, uh, Hosea 2, Hosea 1. There's this beautiful aside that Paul uses about how God looks at the Gentiles and he wasn't just happy that he had the Israelites. He wanted everybody to be saved. So even before Jesus... You know, this is why we have to study our Bibles. Even before Jesus, God was always trying to woo the world to salvation. It didn't matter what culture they came from. As a matter of fact, there's two Gentile, two Gentile women in the line of Jesus the Messiah. And that just shows the mercy of God. He's like, I love them too. You know, whether you're upset with me or not, that I'm going to show mercy to them, I love them too. Right? So... Verse 27 through 29. He also quotes the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. And he was warning them that... So here's the weird thing that was happening. The, Israel's pagan neighbors, some of them were so tired of their pantheons. Oh, we got a God for this and a God for that. 
the Greeks, the Romans, um, Hinduism. There's just, even today, there's a lot of modern-day pantheons. They got millions of gods, and, you know, a lot of the Gentiles were like, so you Israelites, you have one God? <laughs> so it's, uh, I only have to focus on pleasing one God, and, and your one God can have a relationship with me. And Gentiles would come to the Israelites who were being a good witness, just like Christians today, and they would uh, receive the Israelite, the monotheism there. And they would reject their gods of, of their uh, ancestors and their culture. And that was a neat thing. So what, what happened is some of the Israelites, weirdly enough, were starting to take some of the pagan practices of their neighbors while some of the pagans were saying, the Israelites, we want your God. And God, he dealt with that. Does God play favorites? No. He told the Israelites, listen, you, you start doing that stuff, bad things are going to happen. But he told the Gentiles, you, you want to come in my direction? I will accept you. You know, it's, it's, it's pretty cool when it comes to our God. And I would just say this, because there's a lot to this. <laughs> Maybe I should have broken it up a little bit more for, to another Sunday. But there's an expression that says, the same sun that melts the ice also hardens the clay. So if you put a block of ice, some people are like a block of ice, you put it out on a July day when it's 100 degrees, and you take a piece of moist clay, and you also put it next to the block of ice on 100 degrees, by the end of the day, the ice will be a puddle of water, and the clay, instead of mushy and soft, will be hard like a rock. And people's hearts can be like that. It's the same sun, but it had a different effect on those two compounds. For me, in my 20s, you know, eventually I, I said to myself as I, I went to a Calvary and I was hearing the Word of God, and I just was kind of saying to myself, how long are you going to run from God? I'm talking to myself, by the way, and it wasn't out loud. Um, after a few months of hearing the Word, that sun, right, my heart started to melt. Others are like that lump of clay, sadly. They start off a little hard. The more they hear the word, the more they hear preaching, they get angry. I've seen videos of preachers, and I, I'm not into the, 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 the mean street preachers. You know, I, I love the ones that engage and have a personal discussion with strangers on the street. And you see these preachers, they're just being really nice and, and working out, uh, you know, trying to warm up to these, these people, and they start cursing at them. They start cursing at them. Some get violent. Some throw things at them. And you're like, what did that person do to you? They just wanted to tell you about the love of God. So that's the block of, of clay. And I would ask you this morning, you're here this morning, some of you, your hearts are melting more because you love God and you want to love Him more. And some of you are becoming harder. Don't be, don't be a Pharaoh. Pharaoh is, is a great example. Listen, I'm, up, I'm not up here to be pugilistic, but at the same time, I've got to be honest. You know, what is Paul trying to say here? There's a lot of passion in what he says. You know, going back to the beginning chapter of, of chapter 9, he, he's passionate. He goes, I would count myself accursed, you know, as long as all of my Israelites, you know, would come to, to Jesus. His passion was for those that he loved to come into the fold. But he knew that a lot of them were going to harden their hearts. And what were they hardening their hearts against? God's mercy? They were also hardening their hearts against God's sovereignty. And we have to be careful we don't do that. Once we start going down a road saying, you know, and we've all done it at some point, you know, but if I was God, I would, I would bless all the good people and they, and they would have everything and all the bad people would get punished. 
You don't know what God's doing behind the scenes. But when we step into eternity, I believe we will know everything that he did. Again, he's got all the information. Last few verses, verse 30. This is a tough chapter. It says, what shall we say then? The Gentiles who did, who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were, by the works of the law. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. So that goes back to Isaiah 28. We also see uh, Psalm 118, where God says, I put out the chief cornerstone. And basically, there's no discussion here. Christ is the chief cornerstone. But some will be offended by it. Even today, many are offended by Jesus. Why? What did Jesus do? If you read the Gospels, he was the best person that ever lived. How could you hate Jesus? And there's always, I just love to, <laughs> I just love to <laughs> investigate. You know, when someone is like that, I just say, all right, why are you so upset? Well, I don't know. <laughs> like, they just don't even know why they're upset. They're so angry. And uh, I'm like, I just, I, I have to get to the root of it, you know? And not everybody's happy with me when I do that, but I am nice, and I do try to be gentle, but... You know, I just, I've dealt with a lot of hard-hearted people, and usually it's like the layers of the onion. There's something right in the center that all the anger and the hurt and the, you know, the pejoratives, those are all just layers of the onion. There's something deep inside. Maybe the person's wounded. You know, if you, my wife and I, we we rescue animals, you know, a, a wounded animal will bite. They're scared. They don't know if you're friend or foe. Um, and people can be like, like wounded. You know, and then they lash out in anger, and anger is a lot of times a covering for fear. If you look at the um, the behavioral sciences, so four out of four is Israel erroneously seeks the righteousness of God by works. What do we cover in Romans four? That the father of Israel take take a lesson from great 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 granddad Abraham. Romans chapter four before circumcision, before the law, before works. Abraham was justified. Because he had faith in God. Didn't take much. Well, how do I get to God? Do I need a a degree? Do I need to be popular? Do I need to do all these? Just believe. Believe. Research what Jesus did for you on the cross. Cross, go through it. And, um, you know, in your quiet time, just say, you know what, Lord, that guy's a little kooky up there on Sunday morning. I don't believe everything he says, but I, I... I'm, I'm interested, Lord. He, he's got my attention. I Look up at him. Don't look up at me in your quiet time and, and ask him to come into your life. It's that simple. No strings, no gimmicks. We're not a middleman. We're just here to show you the way. So four, it's by faith, it's not by works. Why is Jesus, Yeshua, a stumbling block? Why do so many in the world stumble over Jesus Christ even today? Why is it that even the works of government, how they will be friendly to some religions, but once you say Jesus, it's like kryptonite. It makes them crazy. You know, these things can be in the school, but not the Jesus thing. Christianity. What, what did, what did, forget about what people as Christians have done over the years. What did Jesus do? He died for our sins. He cut his life short. He raised the dead. He healed the sick. He opened the eyes of the blind. 
If you read the four Gospels, you can't find any fault in what Jesus did as the Son of God. Amen? Here's the answer. Why is Jesus a stumbling block? Because it's not of works, it's not of deeds, it's not of religion, it's not of the law. Let me say it another way. Whether you're a Jew or Gentile this morning, whoever you are, wherever you've come from, you're not getting into heaven because you're good. You're not getting into heaven because you think that you have a good heart, because you didn't kill anybody. I hear that all the time. You're not getting into heaven because you're basically a good person. You write a check to a church, and that offends people. You get into heaven based on what he did on the cross and your faith in believing what he did. And then people get upset. They get prideful. So... What are you trying to say? I'm not a good person? Well, let me start with saying I'm not a good person. I'm a sinner. So are you. And it's the, the, the offense of pride. And sometimes religious people can be the hardest to reach for Jesus. I know that sounds crazy because they're so hardened by the institution and the board game of take one step forward, take two steps back, you know, give money, um, do these rites, do these rituals, say these things, memorize these prayers. And you know, you know what happens with religion? You actually feel good because you're participating. Because you're actually doing something and you feel, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm working towards a solution. But that's not what God wants. Because then we could take credit for our salvation. He did all the heavy lifting. You know the part where you start to work with God and you help the elderly person across the street and you go and you serve and you go to the, you know, the food uh, bank and you... you, you that's great stuff, but that comes after you're saved. You see, God wants you to do all that. He wants me to do all that, but that's not how you get to heaven. Once you're, you've gotten to that assurance, that's what you do because you just say, wow, God is working me. This is so great. It's an appreciation. It's not payback either. It's not like a mortgage. You, know, you don't put your check in every month. It's completely separate. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. And it's hard. Sometimes it's a learning curve for people to understand that when they've been indoctrinated by religion. Many of the Gentiles, again, were tired of their gods who didn't answer them, and they sought out the one true God. And God honored that childlike faith. However, at the same time, many prideful, instead of watching Abraham be justified by faith, many prideful people rose up because of their privilege, their status, their education. They presumed themselves getting into heaven, and God rejected that way because they were trying to work their way into heaven. And folks, this is a stumbling block in 2019 in New Jersey. And this is why And people have come into church and they try it for the first time and they're like, ah, he doesn't sound like that guy on TV. You know, I don't want to hear these hard things that I got to... This is the word, folks. This is, this is the foundation to what we believe and why we believe. This is the truth. This is here because God wanted us to, to study it. Jesus said in John 14, if you love me, How many Christians would say, yeah, that's me. I'm raising my hand. I love him. Follow my word. Well, wait a minute. I've never read the word. Okay, then you have a problem. You've got to start to, Jesus is the word. He's the Lagos. God loves his word. He doesn't put his word out for no reason. He puts it out for us to absorb it and to apply ourselves. So my question as we wrap up is, for those who don't know him, will you be like Pharaoh? And, and I've seen it. I've seen it. People come to church. They, um, they're broken, like Pharaoh. And they, they try to get into the, the, the system, the, into the groove. And, and God 
they, they get through that financial crisis. They get through that marital crisis. They get through that trial. They get through that boss gunning for them, trying to get them fired. And then they're in the clear. And you know what they do? Stop coming to church. Because things are better now. And that's, that's sad, but that's the human condition. And I did that for a while until I just made it a lifestyle. You know what I'm saying? Let my people go. <laughs> nope. Oh, this is this frogs everywhere. I actually love frogs. I love seeing frogs. They make me happy. Um, <laughs> that'd be the only plague that I, I don't like the lice and the, whatever. So the bottom line is that when he, re- when he pulled back, then Pharaoh went back to his... And people do that. They go back to their old ways. And I've got to be honest with you, even as a pastor, probably I'm the closest to God. If, you know, everybody's life is kind of like a graph. You know, we're never perfect you know, all the time. and Actually, we're never perfect ever. But what happens is when, when it's really... There's a lot of pressure on me. I, I'm, I'm speaking to him a lot. I'm talking to him a lot. You know what I'm saying? I'm, I'm really close to him. And that's the human condition. A lot of Christians do that. They're really close when they're going through a trial. And then when they're, they get out of it, they, they kind of go back to what they were doing. And it's sad. God wants us all the time because he loves us, not because he's mean. So the truth is, God is sovereign. But he gave you free will to make the choice whether you want him or not. And that's how they work together. If you come up here today to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior, God knew it from the beginning. But you still get to make that choice. Let's pray. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfield. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m., and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays, we have children's church for all ages, in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, and may God bless you.